Oh, it's time to start. Yeah. We got to start the show. Oh, guess we better. Yeah, let's do it. All set. Hey, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. And I'm Amy Scott, in for Kai Rizdahl. Thank you for joining us, everybody. It is Monday, June 5th. Today, we are going to do the news fix and then let you in on what's making us smile. And I'm in L.A. today, so I'm channeling Kai and using his studio. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Uh, What's your news today, Amy? Okay, well, I got a couple. Um, I'll try to keep them both short. The uh, The first one I was uh, interested in is a story from Bloomberg Businessweek I saw today. They did a big deep dive on the federal home loan bank system, which I think most people probably hadn't heard of until the, the sort of March banking madness, mm-hmm. maybe still haven't heard of. But um, these banks were created during the Great Depression uh, to provide private banks with funding to make mortgages. And that was the intent. But, you know, these days, basically, these banks have become a giant backstop for the financial system without actually doing all that much for housing. Um, during the the meltdown of several banks in March, we started to learn that, um, you know, Silvergate, Silicon Valley, Signature, later First Republic that all failed had been propped up to varying extents by loans from the federal home loan bank system to the tune of billions of dollars. But those banks did very little mortgage lending, at least to the average home buyer. Uh, This is not taxpayer money, I should say. The, The banks, the federal home loan banks make their money by issuing bonds that are exempt from state and local income taxes. Mm-hmm. And they're also attractive to investors because of an assumption that the government would step in in case of default. But critics say that allows these banks to rake in huge profits, which they pay out to their member banks and to their executives, but only a fraction of that money actually supports the housing market. Uh, Bloomberg's analysis found that um, these banks brought in $3.2 billion in net income last year. Just under, just $355 million went to a program that supports housing affordability. So I thought that was pretty interesting. <laughs> wow. And is there any effort to sort of realign it in any way to make it more helpful for homeowners? Yeah, I think um, critics are talking about how we need to reconsider this program. If it's not doing really what it was intended to do, do we need it? On the other hand, it it did provide an important backstop, maybe, you know, perhaps not enough, but uh, others say the Federal Reserve should be really playing that role. And it does with things like its discount window, where it makes loans to banks that need capital. Um, and this was kind of a, another way to do that. Um, but I think, you know, stories like this probably will, will lead to some uh, more thought about how this should be structured. Hmm. So I just wanted to mention one other one that's, um, you know, it's just depressing. Uh, but it is what it is. <laughs> Happy <Noah>. Monday. <laughs> yeah, right? I know. Uh, the National Association, oh, sorry, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uh, and Scripps Institute of Oceanography said today that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere increased sharply last year uh, from last May to this May. It's now 50% higher than before the industrial area era. And this was the fourth largest increase since scientists began taking measurements at the NOAA observatory on Mauna Loa in Hawaii. Um, 
And that's, you know, despite all the recent efforts we've seen to transition away from burning fossil fuels, there is some progress there, but obviously we're still moving in the wrong direction. And next year could be even worse. Scientists say that the new El Nino cycle could actually increase the rate of CO2 growth. Why so is bad news that? there. Why is that? Yeah. You know, I didn't really understand the mechanics of that, um, but El Nino causes warming of ocean temperatures, ocean surface temperatures, and can lead to drought. Mm. And something about drought leads to more carbon emitted. Um, Maybe we but like you'd run have our to, ACs I'd have to dig a little further. Like anyway, yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, the, the, and I should say, I saw this in the Washington Post story, which explained it to some extent, but I came away not fully grasping why that is. Well, that can be a topic for another day. We can look into it again. <laughs> Indeed. Get somebody to make it. So, maybe today? somebody who's listening can make us smart on that. Um, Please, if you're a climate scientist, yes, do tell. Do tell. Uh, so I've got two. So I still subscribe to the paper version of the Washington Post. Um, I know it's like super old school. And yes, I mostly read the paper online. But I do like perusing it and... Every single time I actually sit with it, I end up reading a story that I probably would not have clicked on. Mm, And that happened to me um, this weekend because there was the front like the front page story of the business section of The Washington Post on over the weekend had this story that actually came out, I think, on like May the 26th that I totally missed. But it's this big data analysis of of jobs data. And this is so important because this story tells us so much about how we talk about data, especially as it pertains to jobs. And this is going to come up so much as we head into the election cycle. So here's a headline. Why are red states hiring so much faster than blue states? Because these Washington Post reporters and data journalists were found a trend that was super clear that Republican-leaning states are hiring faster than blue states. According to this, of the 17 fastest hiring states, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 14 voted for Trump in 2020. The top two Biden voting states, Georgia and Nevada, are probably best classified as purple. The 10 Mm -hmm. slowest hiring states all went for Biden. Now then, in our political environment, this is easy to be like Republican states and Republican leadership is better for the economy, better for jobs. This is why the hiring is faster. And the numbers do indeed show that the hiring is faster. But when you dig a little bit deeper, it's because the quits rate is also higher. And so it's job turnover that's generating this faster hiring, among some some other things. So you have, um, and this hiring gap has exist, existed even before the pandemic, by the way. It's like a decade or something. So hmm. job growth isn't any faster, even though hiring is faster, because people are getting hired But it's also because they're leaving other jobs. You've got this job turnover. Also, it it according to this article, 
it aligns very closely to people just hopping jobs more often in red states, and the people they talk to attribute that to the fact that red states typically have less union-friendly environments, and union-friendly states mm. tend to have lower job turnover. And also, there's some education links that um, where in states with lower um, rates of sort of education, people tend to switch jobs more often, lower wages, people tend to switch jobs more often. And those also align with some of these red state uh, correlations. And it's a super interesting article, really digs into the data. You can make a accurate statement about red states hiring more quickly and miss a big picture of what it tells us about the economy. Now, not to say that there are not good and, you know, reasons that people are hiring in these states. There's a lot of energy jobs in a, in red mm. states and less regulation in those spaces, which means that some of these um, fossil fuel and mining intensive industries can really grow in these states a lot easier than elsewhere and therefore add jobs in those spaces. So that is also true. But especially as we head into an election cycle, just be cautious with those data points that people are, are throwing uh, fast and, and furious. And it's a super interesting article that I would not have seen if I had not looked at a physical newspaper. So that's yeah. I'm so one. glad you shared that one. It, it's fascinating because I, I clicked on the, the online version after mm -hmm. you shared the link. And if you just read the first couple graphs, you would have a totally different takeaway than if you read the whole story. Right. Which shows that faster hiring is not the same as faster job growth. Really interesting. Which is not really a nuance that that I have thought that I think of very often. But yeah. Um, yeah. So the other one was something that is actually from today, which is that Oklahoma has approved the first religious charter school in the U.S. that's going to be funded by taxpayers. This is going to be a huge legal fight. Now, there are already some schools uh, in different parts of the country where parents can use state-funded vouchers to send their kids to religious schools, which has also been a fight. But this is a charter school with a religious mandate that will be taxpayer funded. And it's obviously raising the idea of separation of church and state. It's going to be a big legal fight. The Catholic Archdiocese is like, we are ready to go. Let's settle this once and for all. And I will be very fascinated to see how this um this develops over time, because even if in and the Supreme Court has seemed to be amenable, or at least the conservatives on the court seem to be amenable to more taxpayer funding going towards religious schools with the idea that if state funds can be used for private education, you can't discriminate against religious schools, seems to be the direction of the court, as opposed to opponents to these strategies saying you can't use you know, government money for a religious purpose because separation of church and state. It'll be interesting to see how that ends up, you know, kind of hammering out. But I'll be so fascinated to see what happens in Oklahoma when a Muslim group asks for funds to start a charter school in Oklahoma. I just want to see it. Yeah. I mean, do you think that'll happen? I, I, I hope if they test the far. case. I mean, it feels <laughs> yeah. like a natural yeah, or a Jewish school. Yeah, or a, exactly. Yeah. It feels like a natural thing. It's like, oh, we're doing this now. Let's do it for everyone. Because that's the thing. If you open this door, 
and say that you have to allow this, you have to allow it for everyone. And if they don't, then that's a whole other can of worms. But yeah, I'm going to be yeah. watching this and see how that develops. So those were mine. Definitely. So before we move on, I just I uh, went back to the post story because mm-hmm. I, I wanted to I didn't want to leave listeners hanging. So okay. here's what uh, this scientist, um, Ralph Keeling, who's a geochemist at Scripps, told the post that El Nino, which is the opposite of La Nina, triggers warmer than normal surface waters in the tropical Pacific Ocean and is marked by drought in some regions. During an El Nino, drying tropical vegetation and savannas contribute to higher CO2 levels. Ah, because they capture it. Yeah. Yeah. And so he expects the news next year to look even worse. Yikes. Okay. We really need that smile now. (laughs) Absolutely. You go first. Uh, Mine comes courtesy of somebody in the uh, Make Me Smart fan run discord who posted this super fun New York Times article, which is a profile of Martinus Evans, who has set up this super popular network of runners and it's called the slow af run club you can imagine what af stands for and it's a quote virtual community of back of the packers with more than 10,000 members worldwide at 300 Mm. pounds evans is a beloved figure among runners who have felt left out of the sport He's graced the cover of Runner's World, posed nude for men's health, and appeared in an Adidas ad. His Instagram account, 300 Pounds and Running, has around 62,000 followers. And this month, he's releasing his first book, Slow AF Run Club, the ultimate guide for (laughs) anyone who wants to run. And, like, I I love this because... You know, last week, Kai and I were talking about the things that we do to kind of restore ourselves from the barrage of news. And and we were talking about how important it is to get outside and do physical activity. And I have real bad knees in my family. And Mm. I, I used to run in like high school, but I ran on like concrete and I feel like I destroyed my knees forever. But I've actually been kind of nervous to get back into running because I'm like, ah, am I a little too heavy now? Is it going to be bad on my knees and this, that and the other? And I I love this. I mean, you know, it's inspiring. I want to give it a go. I love that too. I was like too afraid to read it because I also have an injury that I used to be a runner and I loved running. And I'm afraid that I'm going to go out there and try it again and get disappointed. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, this is the thing, though, right? You're afraid that you're not going to be as good as you were. And I guess if we just let that go and are content to run slow AF, you know, you're still running, (laughs) but you're still running, right? right? I love it. I kind of dig that. So that that made me smile. I'm going to read it. That's a good one. Um, so mine comes from the Wall Street Journal's A-Head, uh, which is always a fun, you know, story to read. Um, this one is about how five-star ratings for services like Uber and Airbnb have become pretty much meaningless because of the pressure to leave yes. five stars, um, <laughs> which I'm totally guilty of. Because, you know, you know that these drivers, their living depends on having a good rating. And, you know, I know personally I'm not going to get in a car with someone who has, like, you know, a low rating, but it's, it's, 
also the way the apps are designed. So if you the the story reports, if you try to leave four stars on Lyft, the app asks you what went wrong. So you have to justify mm-hmm. not giving five stars. I've totally ended up leaving five stars because I didn't want to deal with that. And if drivers have an average below 4.8, they're asked by Lyft to improve their performance. 4.8. I mean, that is pretty good. Like, if that was your grade point average, you'd be really stoked. Um, But I was thinking it's kind of like the standing ovation. Mm -hmm. I'm old enough to remember that that used to be for exceptional performances. But basically now if you go to a, a concert or a play... People stand up and clap no matter what. And you kind of feel like a jerk if you don't, which also makes it kind of like, what do you do for the the truly exceptional drivers? I guess you tip them. But it makes it harder to sort like the really excellent from the just fine, you know, okay performance. Yeah, I've seen people put signs up in the Uber where they're like, please, you know, give a five star rating. If my rating drops below X, I'll get kicked off the platform. And (laughs) it's literally a sign in the car. Um, So there are a couple, there are some services now where the, they're like rideshare services, but the drivers are staff on instead of contractors. And so they actually get Mm. paid a wage. And so the ratings don't matter so much there and I try to use it but it's a bit more expensive so I only use it when Uber is surging but um, do you feel like they have more or less motivation to provide good service um I think more I mean they're getting an hourly wage and benefits and time off I mean I I hope that that is the truth but I don't I don't know I don't know honestly yeah but um, interesting I I will say though that uh when I do have a bad experience in a rideshare service, rather than leave fewer stars, I just won't leave any star. Like, I just won't fill out mm, the uh, thing. I'll just skip it go. and not leave a tip. <laughs> like, that's yeah. the worst so I'll do. So it sends a message to the person who maybe needs it most. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm not going to I'm not gonna knock your rating, but I'm also not going to tip you. So, Yeah. If oh. I get car sick, I'm definitely not giving five stars. <laughs> yeah, my the issue in DC is usually like cars smelling like weed, which is a thing. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> that's coming to more cities very soon. Yeah. All right. Well, look, that's it for us today. We are going to be back tomorrow with our weekly deep dive. This week, we are going to talk to law professor Stephen Vladek, author of the new book, The Shadow Docket. And he's going to make us smart about the important Supreme Court decisions that don't normally get so much attention, but definitely end up affecting our lives. Very much looking forward to that conversation. Until then, if you have a question or a comment or suggestion or want to answer our science question, leave <laughs> us a voicemail at 508-UB-SMART or you can email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Today's program was engineered by Jake Cherry and Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Marissa Cabrera is our senior producer. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. And Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. Did you have a good weekend? Oh, yeah. Only a little less soccer than usual. (laughs) (laughs) Summer. Yay. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine 
I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.